It's Monday, December 12th, 2022, and welcome back to Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast exploring social, economic, political, and geopolitical concerns. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm a Hoover Distinguished Policy Fellow. I'll be your moderator today, joined as usual by our three wise men, our Goodfellows as we call them. That would include the historian Neil Ferguson, the economist John Cochran, the geostrategist Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster. They are Hoover Institution Senior Fellows all. Guys, this is our last episode for 2022. We're about to go on a break here at Hoover, so our viewers should know we'll be back at some point early in 2023. So let's spend the next uh, hour or so talking about what happened in 2022, but also cast an eye on 2023. Neil, I'd like to begin with you. Is it so obvious that Ukraine and Russia is the story of the year? If not, then what is? But rather than kind of discuss why it's the story of the year, maybe we should talk more about what will happen with that engagement in 2023. Well, I don't think it could be anything else, just as you couldn't really put anyone else on the cover of Time magazine as person of the year than Volodymyr Zelensky. Funnily enough, I had a conversation with someone quite senior in that institution, trying as uh, it seemed to find somebody else because it seemed too obvious. And I said, you know, sometimes the obvious Mm. is right. And the only alternative suggestion that I had was to put the Ukrainian people rather than Zelensky on the front of time, because really the amazing thing that happened in 2022 was that Ukraine didn't fold, uh, that Ukraine turned out to be much stronger than almost anybody had realized and much more united. Uh, and as uh, my friend Slava Vakarchuk, the Ukrainian singer said to me, whoever had been president would have had to do that, would have had to channel that that patriotism, that determination not to submit. So that's, I think, the big story. When you look ahead to next year, though, I I think you have to feel a certain unease about where this could uh, go and what we might be saying 12 months from now. Because although the battle has clearly swung in Ukraine's favor this year, the Ukrainian economy is in a parlous state, a much weaker state than the Russian economy. And of course, the Russians have engaged in a partial mobilization. That means they will have more uh, soldiers to throw into this reenactment of World War I in the course uh, of uh, the probably by the spring of 2023. And right at the beginning, I remember discussing with uh, some eminent historians of Russia the parallel with the Winter War of 1939-40, in the first phase of which Finland kicked the Red Army's backside, uh, inflicted extraordinary casualties on the Soviets. Uh, But ultimately, Finland was overwhelmed the following year by Soviet might. And I think there's a very important lesson there for uh, supporters of of Ukraine. They must not keep fighting this war beyond the point at which they uh, they can maintain the upper hand, because because then I fear the sheer scale of of Russian resources and power uh, could turn the tide against them. I don't know if HR, you agree with that, but it's my big fear for next year. You know, I, I think a, a, an analogy that we could also use would be the Montenegrin Ottoman War uh, in, in the in the in the late nineteenth century, when the Ottomans should have had overwhelming force uh, to cru- to crush the Montenegrins, but the Montenegrins demonstrated a tremendous tremendous will and perseverance. And I, I I just think that when you look at what Russia is doing to mobilize. There's just no way that they can generate the combat power to subjugate Ukraine overall. But I I think to even go on the offensive again. So I I feel better about Ukraine's prospects from a military perspective 
Uh, but you're quite right. I mean, the, the 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 support for the Ukrainians must be sustained, and it has to include economic and financial support as well. And and you know, I, I think back to the the show that we did with Stephen Cockin when he when he he, uh, he said that he gave us the equation for uh, for sustained European American other support for the Ukrainians, and and he used the equation of of Ukrainian will plus Russian atrocities. Uh, equal sustained support. And I, I hope that's, I think that's true. Um, but as you mentioned, you know, as we go into next year, there are already, you already see some of these arguments, right? To, hey, that we have to force some kind of a negotiated settlement. I think that would be a huge mistake. Uh, but I, I think that uh, the sustained support for the Ukrainians is, is a contested issue in the next year. Let me let me give my short version of it too. Though you guys are the experts on this, I also want to celebrate the bravery of ordinary Ukrainians. Uh, you know that that's just, who went out and stopped Russian tanks on their way to Kiev. Wow, that was amazing. As as well, of course, Zelensky uh, being brilliant at channeling that. Um, good news here also was was that the West did not cave as we were expected to. I think the withdrawal from Afghanistan really set um, uh, Putin's expectations up that. Uh, we would just give up quickly. And to some extent, there's, you know, the waking up of the West, both of our, uh, Europe especially, of our um, our, our need for security and uh, some of the um, horrible um, self-inflicted wounds on energy policy is a big piece of news. The question being, uh, are we going to finish this off? I, I like Boris Johnson's op-ed in the Wall Street Journal. Really, um, the Ukrainians are going to fight hard, but I think, um, unless you guys disagree with me, a lot of the outcome of this depends on what weapons we give them. Do we give them uh, the weapons and the financial support, which is not big in dollar terms, they need to finish this off this summer and not let this turn into an eternal quagmire and the negotiated uh, end, which would be terrible for the U.S. and the West for that end. So really, to some extent, it depends on the Ukrainians' ability. But the Ukrainians' ability to fight depends also a lot on, on whether we supply them with the weapons they need. And, and they, I, I'm never going to win on historical analogies with you guys, but it's always struck me the first Iraq war was an important historical analogy. This shall not stand. Push it back to the borders. That's it. I thought that was the right policy to start with. And, and I hope that we, the West, discover that's the right policy now and the right uh, thing that we want our children and grandchildren to have everyone in the world remembering. If we agree that Ukraine is the story of the year, then let's talk about what deserves honorable mention. Let me throw three topics at you. One's inflation, John Cochran. Second one is cryptocurrency, Neil Ferguson. And the third one is social media today, by the way, being the fifth installment of the Twitter files. Uh, yeah, so uh, the big surprise, maybe maybe not a surprise, depending on where you stand, is inflation. Uh, 10%. I, I think it's fairly clear where it came from. Uh, our government's handed out immense amounts. The U.S. government, about $5 trillion, basically printed money, gave it to people. No surprise we have inflation. Um, and there's not much the Fed could have done about that, uh, though now it's act at being asked to mop up a little bit. Where will it go? Anybody's, you know, economists are always one hand, uh, the other hand. Uh, my guess, based on the models I play with, is that it does ease uh, for a while, but then um, it's going to go on for a long time until something happens, either good or bad. Uh, the bad thing, many of the forces that push inflation can wake up again. 
uh, more fiscal blowouts, uh, bad news in the world elsewhere, and the sorts of things that push inflation down uh, could happen too. Um, our, our countries are all starting to wake up that uh, money doesn't grow on trees and that responsible long-term fiscal policy is important. Uh, if that um, change of will happens, I think inflation could go down. Uh, my best guess is it's going to look like 1975, uh, which is easing of inflation. And then we, we had sort of the hard question around four or 5%. Well, I'm I'm going to be quick because we've decided under John's direction to do three by three. Uh, <laughs> the inflation uh, surprise uh, for those people who back in uh, February of last year uh, thought it would be transitory is that we still have inflation way above target. Mm -hmm. I'm not surprised because I can remember last year when Larry Summers was publishing his op-ed in the Washington Post being one of the few people who agreed with him. And uh, I, like John, think it will be very difficult indeed for inflation to come down as much as the Federal Reserve says it will. It'll come down. It's highly unlikely to remain at the current levels for some fairly predictable reasons. But the problem is the target's still supposed to be an average of 2%, which means it'll have to be well below 2% for that target to be met. The truth is the target's dead. And before long, economists will be clamoring, not John, I'm sure, but others, to raise the inflation target. Why not three? Oh, why not four? They already by the are. Time you, by the time you get into that discussion, which I'm already hearing, uh, even from Olivier Blanchard, as well as the inevitable Paul Krugman, the public is going to say, well, you see, we were right. Uh, our expectations of inflation were correct. The experts were full of baloney with transitory inflation, and now they show their true colors. I think the problem is going to be that expectations are going to remain elevated. And if they change the target, that's only going to confirm public fears. So I'll be amazed if the Fed hits the target it has, which last time I looked was that inflation would be coming down towards 2% by the end of the year or beginning of, of 2024. Dream on, Jay Powell. I'm sure I've said it on the show before, but I'll say it again. I knew Paul Volcker. He's no Paul Volcker. Thank you, Lloyd Benson. HR, you want to jump in on this okay, one? Hey, washed up generals should speak sparingly about the economy. So I'm not going to I'm not going to talk about that. You're not washed up. So you I will can. talk about just crypto with just one other dimension of it is the security dimension, which I've always been concerned about. And the degree to which, you know, crypto, if it if it's not regulated, you know, could provide a way to to for criminals to move money. Of course, we've seen the the impact that crypto had on uh, on cyber attacks, for example. Uh, and so, it's I, I think that's an important aspect of this as we get to you know policies on on a digital currency and so forth that we have to build in the security dimension. Which you know, <laughs> I, I think that this was an advertisement. This collapse of of of, uh, of this company and and the theft of billions of dollars is 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 a cry for some form of, of, of regulation. And then he on, on Twitter, you know, what, I, what I'm really concerned about there is the security dimension as well, the impact on individuals associated with, with polarization and, and extreme content, the degree to which you know the algorithms present people with more and more extreme content that pulls us apart from one another in our society. But as we're seeing, more and more can have a devastating impact on individuals, especially adolescents and and and, and children. And so I, I'm all for so, some of the measures that Neil has has uh, advocated for in in the past, removing some of the legal protections so they have to police themselves more, publishing the algorithms. And Neil, you had an excellent paper on this, I think, three years ago. And what else? Do you think is necessary? I'm following what Tristan Harris is doing, for example, at the the uh, the Institute for Responsible Technology. 
Neil, what are, what are the what are the few things you think we can do that there would be a broad support for? Well, this is a great uh, question to revisit. It's five years now since uh, the publication of the, the Square and the Tower, which uh, I think uh, correctly identified that a huge problem had arisen uh, with the rise of the network platforms, uh, companies like Google as well uh, as as Facebook and, and Twitter. And these network platforms centralized the internet with astonishing speed. And as I pointed out in that book, gave huge power uh, to the people running those companies. Uh, one of the follow-up arguments that I, I made in that book was that in many ways, the network platforms, uh, particularly Facebook, had helped Donald Trump win in 2016. And in the wake of that result, they collectively vowed it would not happen again. What the Twitter files are revealing is the extent to which uh, the people running Twitter prior to Elon Musk's takeover were using their power over that uh, that platform to engage in a quite deliberate strategy uh, of politically motivated censorship. Uh, they may not have used the term shadow banning, uh, but that's exactly what they were doing uh, in another name. Now, it's obviously a problem that the First Amendment does not constrain a private uh, entity like Twitter for engaging in that kind of behavior. On the other hand, if the public sphere is entirely dominated by a small number of network platforms in private ownership, it's hard to see quite how free speech uh, can flourish. I think this is the issue that the Twitter files are forcing us to confront. Notice also that as these uh, reports are broken, uh, are published by journalists like Matt Taibbi and Barry Weiss, the New York Times and the BBC basically ignore the story and pretend it's not there. Uh, there's almost no coverage of these revelations, which I think is illustrative of the, the fundamental problem. So I think we are a long way from solving this. I still think Section 230 is a part of the problem. That's a piece of legislation that has given enormous uh, power to network platforms without any of the responsibility that publishers have to shoulder. And I still think reform of that uh, section uh, of legislation would be a step in the right direction. But I'm not naive enough to think that that would solve the whole problem. And nor am I naive enough to think that Elon Musk can solve the problem by some of the changes that he's making at Twitter. Mm -hmm. let, me, let me add some uh, both crypto and Twitter comments together. The collapse of FT FTX really didn't have that much to do with um, crypto or with regulation. This was a good old fashioned fraud, uh, using customers' money to prop up your proprietary trading, no accounting standards, no risk management, no whatever. Uh, to the extent it's it's regulatory, there's this puzzle that if you say a coin is worth something, then it's a security and you get regulated. If you say it's totally worthless, then you're allowed much laxer regulation, especially if you move the whole thing to the Bahamas. Uh, but I, I actually liked Elizabeth Warren's op-ed on it, where if you read between the lines, she points out there's plenty of rules. They just weren't applied in this case. The egregious, the story in here on regulation is, is the sort of egregious um, way in which regulators were paying no attention to it whatsoever. But it really isn't a story about crypto. It's a story about financial intermediation. It's not a story about blockchain. If blockchain were working, people would be buying crypto directly, not through uh, exchanges. This is a fundamental problem, of course. Uh, crypto, as as um, 
as tokens that are inherently worthless is eventually going to fall. I'm glad to see that's happening. Uh, crypto as a way of implementing um, backed and, and proper securities remains an interesting proposition. It's still not clear quite what is the question to which it's the answer, but we are seeing, for example, getting money into Ukraine. Crypto is very useful for that, and better crypto will be used for that. Getting money into Venezuela and out of China, crypto will remain useful. So it's, this isn't really the end of crypto. It is, to one extent, um, the end. It's the end of the Silicon Valley, uh, the genius who doesn't dress right and who plays video games while pitching Sequoia for a billion dollars. Um, a, a lot of that has been exposed for the rock. You, you really think it's the end of that, John? Uh, I, I, well, we'll see. <laughs> But I think a combination of the rise in interest rates and these scandals, Theranos, uh, SBF, uh, is, is, I think, bringing some sanity to that, which relates to Twitter. Uh, of course, the uh, the uh, political um, censorship is, is all over the news. But I just got through Twitter, which, by the way, is a great way to find out about what's going on with Twitter, what's going on with crypto, what's going on with AI and so forth. Tw Twitter remains a great uh way of learning about these things. Today's Twitter feed that I saw is the one no one's paying attention. Apparently in those files, Twitter's security was absolutely awful. Twitter's security protocols looked about the same as OSBF and FTX's accounting protocols. Uh, incredibly lax. Um, 5,000 employees had accounts had access to anything they want. At one point, they were completely unbacked up. Uh, total chaos. So it's interesting to see that in Twitter as well as in crypto. A, a lot of organizations we think are well-run turn out to be very rotten on the inside. And this gets back to the kind of consumer demand, right? If, if a company is going to hold your data, you want them to regard that data as gold and the company as Fort Knox, right? And quite the opposite was the case here with Twitter. And and Frank, quite the opposite is, is the case with TikTok as well, where customers are willingly giving their data to the Chinese Communist Party. So I, I mean, this will be continue to be a big topic for us, I think, in the next year. But let me just put in one thing, a, a note in favor of the uh, leveraged buyout and for-profit companies that uh, a big gazillionaire can come buy up all the shares and expose what's going on in them. Uh, that is a mechanism for uh, for bringing things down to earth, which uh, is, is usually disparaged around Washington. But uh, it's <laughs> and, you know, and, and I'll tell you, it's pretty, effect. it's pretty entertaining. You know, with with all the you know snowflakes melting into Twitter when Musk came in. I mean, I I've got to tell you, I've, I've chuckled a little bit about about you know about this ever since he walked in there with the sink and so forth. Right. Somebody uh, listening is probably thinking, why on earth did they scramble together those three topics? And what was John Cochran thinking when he tried to get everybody to talk about all three? But you have to realize, dear viewer and listener, they're connected. Because if the Fed had not raised rates uh, the way that it did, then that all the leveraged players in crypto would not have been exposed in the way that ultimately blew up Sam Bankman-Fried's scam. In, in, without the tightening of rates, I don't think the bubble would have burst. Almost every bubble in history has burst because of a change in the monetary environment. And at the same time, the, the story of SBF and FTX's uh, antics was not broken by the Wall Street Journal. It was not broken by the New York Times. The best coverage of the whole scandal was on Twitter, no question. So these three things are interrelated in a really complex way. 
Neil, you mentioned uh, Volodymyr Zelensky being Time's Man of the Year. I'd like you to uh, name someone else you found particularly compelling in 2022. doesn't have to be someone famous or in the news, just someone who's kind of an extension of your work or your play. Uh, I thought about this myself. Uh, Masa Amidi came to mind. Uh, Jimmy Lai, who was just sentenced to five years, uh, nine months in prison yesterday by the Chinese, comes to mind. But who would you uh, say is a compelling figure in the non-Zelensky category? You know, it's very hard not to think about football if you are in World Cup world. And the cult of, of Lionel Messi is one of the most extraordinary things that I have witnessed in my life. I, I just was in Argentina and it taught me something very important. And that is that you can have a religious experience around a sporting event. Now, we take football seriously in Scotland, no question. Uh, but we don't come close to the Argentines who worship uh, their star player, uh, Lionel or Leo Messi, in a way that I don't think I've ever really seen in modern times. In fact, I think they feel a much greater reverence towards him than the Ukrainians feel towards President Zelensky. So I, I, I come from Buenos Aires realizing that I haven't fully understood uh, the, the meaning of the famous uh, Scottish manager, Bill Shankly's observation that football wasn't a matter of life and death. It was far more important than that. In Argentina, it is a religion. And Messi occupies this almost godlike status. They carry almost they almost carry icons of Messi around in the street. And it will be truly painful for them when Croatia win on penalties, as inevitably will be, be happening later this week. So it's a short distance from uh, Messi to Messiah is what you're saying. John, who caught your attention? Exactly well, if we're gonna, I'll, I'll keep the football uh, analogy going. Uh, soccer, football, whatever you want to call it. Uh, the video of, and I'm sorry, I forget the name, the U.S. player gently hugging the losing Iranian. Uh, that, that, uh, yeah, that brought the real HR to, to my uh, to, to my mind. Uh, you know that that tells you something about what's really going on with people in the world. That that was one of the most heartwarming moments uh, of the whole year. And uh, you know, following Twitter, maybe we should nominate Elon Musk for disruptor of the year. It may have cost him forty four billion dollars, but um, uh, we're all learning some uh, lessons. So thanks, thanks Elon for all the money. <laughs> hey, on on Messi, I highly recommend Wright Thompson's essay. On Messi, and by the way, just read anything Wright, Th Wright Thompson writes. He's he's the best sports writer of his generation, but he's also written on a broad range of other topics. He's just an he's just an elegant, uh, compelling writer. But I, I I'll go with uh, I'll go with Masa Mini and and also you know all things related to Iran. I think the image John that you're talking about is extremely important. I think it's it's important really for, on U.S. Iran relations, but but to bolster the Iranians who are protesting. I think. Just like Zelensky is to the Ukrainian people, as Masa Amini, I think, is to is to the Iranian people and the tremendous courage that they've that they've demonstrated in, in standing up to the theocratic dictatorship. But I think what the World Cup comes out of the World Cup, I think, with, with these these competitions, is that you know more we have more in common across humanity than we have differences. You know, I think you know, we we talk so often about what separates us, what divides us. You know that, and of course, the trend toward identity politics and categorizing everybody and and organizing people on a, on a strata of oppressor to, to victimhood is ridiculous you know? and and uh and so i i think that the world cup is powerful to me because it, you see you just see people come together based on their common love for the sport uh and and their their you know their affection for one another across cultural boundaries 
I'm surprised you guys didn't bring up Xi Jinping and China's dramatic turnaround. It was only, what, a week ago that we were saying China's stuck in zero COVID forever. A couple of protests and, and look, uh, I, I need some comment from my good fellows on this one. This was one of the most remarkable events of 2022 because it seemed as if in the wake of the party Congress, Xi Jinping's grip on power was completely uh, unlimited. And yet, a relatively small number of protests. It wasn't as if a vast throng of students gathered in the Tsinghua campus seems to have sufficed to blow him off course uh, and to abandon uh, the zero COVID policy. We are still waiting with bated breath to see what comes next. Uh, in fact, uh, only a, a few restrictions have, have in practice been lifted. Uh, but mention of zero COVID has entirely ceased in official Chinese Communist Party circles. And uh, the evidence is hard to, to, to trace because uh, the statistics on, on cases uh, and on deaths are almost entirely unreliable now. So we're having to track things like mobility. Remember how we used to do that in the early stages of the pandemic in the US? Uh, judging by mobility data, something's going very wrong in Beijing. There must be a great surge of infections there. On the basis of what happened in Hong Kong back in the spring of this year, there's going to be a huge wave of COVID that sweeps through a, a pretty poorly vaccinated elderly population and kills a great many of them. People have been estimating uh, numbers above a million. Uh, this is all, it seems, because Xi Jinping took fright uh, in the face of the kind of protests that through Chinese history have often been very historically significant. Protests by students, protests in Beijing. Uh, and we, yet, we have yet to see if he's going to get away with it. In one scenario, it's a public health disaster that damages the legit legitimacy of the party just as much as zero COVID itself. But I hear other China experts saying, no, no, this is the exactly what happened elsewhere. There was a great spike uh, in infections and deaths, and then life resumed as normal. And that's what's going to happen in China. China's going to boom in 2023. John, I wish I knew which it's going to be, but it's one of the huge questions of next year. Neil, yeah, let's stick with you. Uh, big story in 2023 in the non-Zelensky, maybe non-COVID category. Oh, uh, the, the the most irritating and 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 yet completely inescapable story of this year is Chat GBT, yes. the AI, uh, your AI conversation uh, buddy. I mean, basically, Chat GPT is like the most annoying kid you went to school with who, who knew the answer to everything, uh, no matter what you asked uh, him or her. It's sort of Hermione Granger from the Harry Potter books on your laptop. And, uh, and, and everybody, including everybody on Twitter, is uh, obsessively uh, playing with uh, ChatGPT. And at some level, it's it's fascinating to see artificial intelligence uh, deliver at this level. I mean, it's capable of writing a plausible essay. I asked it just before uh, we went on air uh, to do a retrospective on 2022 in the style of Neil Ferguson, and it did it did quite well. Uh, <laughs> Though it seemed to me that it could equally well have been uh, in the style of uh, name anyone, it was it was it was pretty generic, and and it crashed before it got to the contrarian conclusion that I was hoping for. But it can churn out extraordinarily plausible essays 
answers to questions. It's right. of course fallible because it's 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 AI. What does it do? It takes vast quantities of data and it uses these large language uh, technologies uh, to infer plausible answers. And 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 of course they're plausible, but they're not always right. And John can probably give some examples of how you you catch it out. One of the best things about it, it's it's going to kill the college essay, uh, and and so American uh, American late teenagers will no longer have to perjure themselves by writing tremendously fabulistic essays about their desire to save the world, because it'll be too obviously the work of Chat GPT. But I I'm already bored of it. I wish it didn't exist, and it annoys me just as much as Hermione Granger annoys Ron Weasley in the Harry Potter books. <laughs> So, Alec, this is a, a transformative moment. Um, now, it does. It's also a great example of Twitter. Um, where do you learn about ChatGPT? Go on Twitter. All of my economist friends took the week off and started playing ChatGPT three and and pointing out what it does. Now, it's very good. What it does, it takes the huge body of of a language and puts snippets back together again, and it sounds incredibly plausible, which may tell us something about human language and how how little intelligence actually we're representing when we speak. Uh, it's bad at logic, and uh, the, the best example was somebody who got it, who asked it, which is heavier, 16 kilos of feathers or 16 kilos of iron? And ChatGPT3 proudly pronounced that 16 kilos of iron was heavier. Uh, because, of course, it just takes what people say and puts it back together again. And uh, it isn't, for the moment, really connected to fact or, or logic basis, so I think that, that will improve quickly. Um, which leads to, you know, so where is it going to go? Um, uh, that depend, you know, garbage in, garbage out is the old theory of software. Uh, I wonder what happens once a chat starts digesting its own language as the training module. I did see somebody else uh, give it an IQ test. It got about 83. Uh, it passes, however, the bar. Uh, it gets about 70% on the bar exam. Uh, so um, it's doing pretty well there. Uh, it is uh, going to change all sorts of things that are based on language. Uh, Marginal Revolution has a great list of things that are going to completely change with ChatGP3, and, and some for the better, some for the worse. Phishing is going to get really, really good. So if, if, you're, if you're, um, your ability to detect is an email true or false uh, is going to be hard. Comment, it pointed out uh, comments to regulatory agencies in Congress are going to be overwhelmed by plausible sounding individual chat GP3. So all sorts of systems like that are gonna be completely broken by uh, by this ability to produce very plausible sounding language. So uh, a big thing coming. All right, HR, you're an author. You're working on a book right now. Uh, Neil Ferguson is writing a book. John Cochran writes books oh, yeah. and blogs. All of you, uh, the English language is very important to all of you. I'd like you to give me one word or one phrase you'd like to see retired in 2023. HR, why don't you, why don't you start? Hey, I, you know, how about the word robust? I, I mean, it just bugs the heck out of me. And, and one of the reasons it is, is because it's just part of what I would call policy pablum uh, that comes out of Washington. Um, and then just in general, I would say just eliminating superfluous adjectives uh, and, and, and through, throughout these documents. I mean, I read the National Defense Strategy, and it's just full of unnecessary words that cloud understanding. And then also, if I it, maybe also the clause seeking to, you know, just do it. Stop seeking to do something. Just do it. So I, I mean, there, there's a lot about language in Washington D.C. that that irritates the hell out of me. All right, John Cochran, what would you like to retire from the English language? I, I would, I would like to pass a constitutional amendment against the passive voice. 
Every Absolutely. sentence must have a subject. We must know who we're talking about. Not the usually it's the federal government, but we don't say it. <laughs> no, absolutely. Yeah. Neil. I wish I could get people to say going forward as if we had the option to go back in time. But if there's a redundant phrase that gets overused, especially at meetings in the United States, it's going forward. I mean, time goes forward by definition. I mean, speaking as an historian, I can tell you, we really don't have the option to go back. Even on Goodfellas, we can do second takes, but we can't turn the clock back. So stop saying going forward. You're going forward all the time. That's the human condition. And hey, and Neil, as a cavalry officer, I agree completely with that. I mean, well, there's no sense in going backward ever. <laughs> okay, Neil, let's stick with Neil. Let's stick with you. One thing of importance that you got right in 2022. There's a 10 minute time limit on this one. Uh, well, I'm not going to blow my own trumpet for 10 minutes. On January the second, I wrote the first column of the year. Its opening words were "War is coming." I rest my case. Okay, HR. Yeah, I, I think it's. I think all of us recognizing that the Ukraine war was going to happen, right? That it wasn't a black swan. It's what Frank Hoffman calls a pink flamingo. It's right there. It's right there in, in front of you. But but I guess also from the very beginning, you all will re, you'll remember that I thought Russia was going to fail from the outset, and and uh, and then the main reason for that was I I thought the Russian military was was overrated, the Ukrainian army was underrated, uh, and I just looked at the scale on the map. And looked at the size of their forces, and there's no way in hell they could have, they could have pulled it off, um, unless unless this coup de main had worked, you know, the assassinations and the and the, and the seizure of the airport. But but you know, I, I think that it was predictable uh, that Russia was going to invade. It was also quite predictable that they would fail as well. Okay, John. One thing you got right. I think both you and Neil saw inflation coming a mile away. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I got to take inflation. Uh, I'm I'm the luckiest guy in the world. I submitted a book manuscript about a year and a half ago that said if you print five trillion dollars of money and give it to people, you'll get inflation. And the federal government is just really helping my book sales tremendously. So, <laughs> thank okay. you. Now I got a lot of things wrong in 2022. There was a the wave election I thought was coming did not pan out. I thought Aaron Judge was a fool to turn down a seven year, 213 million dollar contract. It turns out he got nine years, 360 million dollars. Um, HR, one thing you got wrong in 2022. I thought the Phillies were going to win it all. They came close, but uh, you know, I, I, that's what. No, I'm disappointed. I was wrong about it too. Okay, Neil. I thought Joe Biden would be more like Jimmy Carter this year than he has been, and you know, you mentioned the wave election that never was. Right. That was an exceptionally strong performance for a party uh, with a man in the White House. And the man in the White House is part of the reason. Mm -hmm. uh, some of my younger uh, colleagues at Greenmantle love uh, to taunt me about this. Uh, they have the dark Brandon meme on. They sometimes put it as their background on Zoom. I don't know if any of you have been following the dark Brandon saga, but it went from the uh, let's go Brandon chant uh, being turned on its head Mm -hmm. uh, with Bra with with Biden reappearing as a sort of meme lord with uh, red uh, laser eyes, so I think I was wrong. I think I underestimated Joe Biden's uh, political effectiveness, and uh, so passed the crow. Right, John, John Cochran. Surely there is one thing you got wrong in twenty twenty two. Yes. Um, first, two things I got wrong. Um, and I'm happy. Well, the first I'm happy about, I thought there'd be a lot more of a red wave that, that people saw 
what's going on in Washington and, and held their noses and said, well, uh, these individuals might not be great, but I, I want a different set of institutions. And I'm glad I was wrong. Uh, I think America came to pretty much just the right answer, which is uh, uh, Republicans have to earn the right to govern. We're not just going to throw them out. So we're, we're, we're so we're, I think we're in a good place. And I'm glad I was wrong about that. I also thought that the European energy uh, uh, business would quickly undo a lot of the complete crazy side of the climate obsession. Uh, but um, certainly U.S. and much European energy policy, the whole, the organizing principle of the progressive left is becoming more and more climate catastrophism. And it's still working very hard, a little bit under the scenes um, in, in uh, all of our federal agencies and, and in much of Europe. So the, it's, it's a resilience in the face of um, facts slapping it in the face uh, surprised me. So I was recently on a long plane ride and uh, used up the time reading uh, Bob Dylan's The Philosophy of Modern Song. It's Dylan examining 65 songs and their importance in the world of music. Uh, the question to the panel, the best book that you read in 2022, HR, do you want to kick off? Yeah, I'll, I want to recommend a book probably nobody's heard of by our visit, a visiting uh, fellow at Hoover, Jakob Griegel, Classics and Strategy. So I've got to be able to keep up with Victor Davis Hanson on the 11th floor of the tower. I'm not, you know, I'm an American historian. So <laughs> it helped me bone up on, on the classics, but also the way Griegel describes how to think, how to think ab about strategy is just brilliant. And then I've got to, I got to recommend another one too. Another, another visiting fellow, Zach Shore, his book, this is not who we are. America's struggle between vengeance and virtue. A lot of the research he did was right at the Hoover archive about Her Herbert Hoover and and what he what he describes it is so compelling in the book, perfect for this holiday Christmas season here is how Americans after World War II made sacrifices so that they could send food to Europe and prevent the starvation of their former enemies. And he tells stories about like a, the food train going across the country, how American distilleries shut down for a month so that mm -hmm. so that that wheat could be shipped over uh, to, to Europe. And of course, Herbert Hoover was running. Uh, that relief effort. So anyway, two great books by two uh, Hoover visiting fellows. Mm -hmm. John Cochran, best book you read in 2022? Bill Graham, uh, Early and Eklund, The Myth of American Inequality. This is a great book. It's an easy read. Don't worry. It's not full of equations and charts and graphs. Uh, just enough charts and graphs. Easy to read ones, uh, unlike my books, which have too much of all of those. Uh, everything you thought about inequality was wrong for a very simple reason. All the numbers ignore taxes and transfers. Uh, when you when you count the fact that rich people pay a lot of taxes and poor people get a lot from the government, uh, inequality is every is way way better than you think. The, there's a myth that um, the quote middle class is doing worse than it was in the 1970s. That is also false. Documented how much it is true that um, among lower income Americans, you work uh, you work more, you learn an extra dollar, they take away a dollar worth of benefits. Uh, that's in there as well. All uh, very clearly explained. And, uh, a great read. It deserves, uh, it's being completely ignored by mainstream media or whatever, but this is a really important one. And it's uh, it's not... It is so tempting to write this in deep statistical mumbo jumbo. This one's very clearly written, beautiful, convincing. Uh, go get a copy. Neil, when you're not writing, and what little time you have to actually read a book, what did you read in 2022 that stood out? Well, one must always spend more time reading than writing. That's very important. I know people who do rather the opposite. Uh, I, I can't. I can't uh, 
talk about my reading experience in 2022 without talking about Thomas Hardy. I immersed myself in Hardy's writing. Uh, it began with, I think I've mentioned it on the show before, Return of the Native. Then I read or reread Far From the Madding Crowd. And then for the first time, I read Jude the Obscure, which is one of the most agonizing tragedies in English literature. And uh, these books uh, gave me so much solace, so much consolation uh, this year, which has been a tough year in many ways uh, uh, for all of us. Uh, these books gave me enormous, enormous amounts of solace. They're extraordinarily beautifully written. And, uh, and, and Hardy was a genius. He also understood something about history, which is really important. And that is that very small things can have huge consequences. Small decisions, little mistakes, uh, uh, that's central, particularly to Jude the Obscure, have enormous life-altering consequences. That's the most important thing that most historians don't properly understand about the way that, that history works. Okay. H.R. McMaster, you're a man who literally is meant to play Santa Claus because you're a jolly old soul. What is a holiday tradition in the McMaster household? <laughs> hey, we just, we just get the whole, we just get the whole family together. And, uh, and, and then we, you know, we, we, uh, we host uh Christmas Eve here at, at our, at our home. And then we go to my, to my uh, sister-in-law, brother-in-law's house and we have family coming in from Philadelphia, so we're my, my sister's coming, so it's going to be a great time. And you know, we we everything's renewed with grandchildren. I mean, being a grandparent is is the best, you know, because you get to to just uh, you know, view the you know view Christmas through their their joyful eyes, and it's just it's just a, a great great time. Yeah, for the record, I work for HR McMaster in my spare time. John, what's a Cochran holiday tradition? Well, unfortunately, our, our best ones uh, left the house with with the children. My favorite memory, though, is uh, um, we would typically go cut down our own tree, which involved driving out to the very bleak cornfields of Illinois, finding a Christmas tree farm, uh, spending most of the day out there while while we argued over which was the perfect tree and stopping for hot cocoa on the way home. That one's gone, but what one, one that does uh, remain is the cooking of the famous, uh, um, my mother's and her parents and whatever family uh, Christmas cookies it's a German recipe. Guests look at them and say, I'm not eating that because they look like little slightly burned squares. But trust me, uh, <laughs> you, if you taste one of Grandma Lydia's famous Christmas cookies, you will be finishing the bowl. And Neil, the Ferguson household. Well, we're extremely eccentric uh, because uh, an absolutely central tradition of Christmas is going to church. Uh, I, I, I think the English experience of Christmas is different from the American because we don't have Thanksgiving. And so all that Americans put into Thanksgiving uh, is also put into Christmas uh, in, in England. And England has the most exquisite aesthetics. When you go to, for example, an Oxford college to hear carols sung at night, perhaps a night like the one uh, tonight when there's snow on the ground and, and fog in the air, uh, there's an exquisite magic uh, to the sound and, and to the spectacle. And I'm extremely excited about the prospect of, of showing this to my youngest children this year and introducing them to, to that, that magical element. It's, it's magical uh, about, about Christmas. Uh, that, that, that for me is, the, is the, central, the central thing about it. And turkey be damned. 
Okay. I just want to put in a plug for what Neil just said, because I'm yes. a I'm a deep non-churchgoer in my adult life. But I do remember going to churches, especially if you can go to a church in Europe, a cathedral where it's cold and it's and it's dark, and think about people have been doing this for two thousand years every Christmas. Kind of it, it it brings you in touch with your history, even if you're not a believer. Well, if Neil were traveling so much, I suggest a good fellow's Boxing Day. <laughs> well, Boxing Day is uh, is a special uh, event in our family because it's also the birthday of of my son Thomas, and so. Oh. Uh, there'll be a grand, grand gathering of of the family to celebrate that on 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 Boxing Day. Um, uh, he's also being initiated into another great uh, British tradition. Uh, he's going to see Arsenal play uh, uh, in London, uh, about which he's immensely excited. And that all serious Arsenal fans know that the World Cup is a mere interruption yes. of the much more serious business of the Premier League. And as Arsenal were at the top of the Premier League just before the World Cup, we're itching to get back to serious football and get this this World Cup over with. I mean, who's interested anymore anyway? Okay, uh, let's discuss briefly what each of you hopes to accomplish in 2023. HR, a book. Yeah, yeah, I really do want to get this damn book done. <laughs> so, <laughs> and and uh, you know, I've, I got a love I've got a love hate relationship going with it right now. So tell, tell the folks what the book is. So this this book is 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 about my time as national security advisor and and uh, and it's the book that I said in battlegrounds you know hey this is the uh, in battlegrounds I said this is the book <laughs> not the book people wanted me to write they wanted me to write the memoir up front but but of course uh, I felt that that would have been you know kind of a violation of, of trust as a national security advisor I couldn't say what readers would want to, would want to know about that experience but I want the book to last I wanted to place my my. Uh, experience in broader historical perspective, you know, what, and answer some questions people might have, like, what the heck does a national security advisor do? You know, why is it, why is it important? What's an effective national security decision-making process? So, so um, I'm, I'm doing a fair bit of research. It's not just based on my recollection uh, of, of events. And uh, I hope it'll be a worthwhile read. John, what's on your bucket list for 2023? You know, we don't make uh, great, uh, great media here because we're so boring. Uh <laughs> Finish old, finish up the old book project. There's a lot that needs to be built on with it. Uh, a lot of marketing the book, but also talking to people, seeing it, it's a foundation on where you go. So trying to establish the where you go next. And then I have my next book project uh, ready to be started. Okay. And Neil? I'm going to finish uh, volume two of the biography of Henry Kissinger, uh, which I've been working on for much longer than uh, HR has been working on his book, I have to admit. Uh, I was asked what the subtitle of the book was going to be uh, by uh, a, a Chinese journalist. Uh, the, the first volume was, of course, called The Idealist. And so the obvious subtitle uh, for the second volume uh, would be The Realist, but it's not going to be called uh, The Realist. We, we should all try a GPT-3 on it, Neil. Um, write a biography <laughs> of, uh, of, uh, of Henry Kissinger in the style of Neil Ferguson. I'll try You'll write the definitive work on inflation. I believe AI is going to replace is going to replace me if if yeah, somebody can argument. give it. I don't. But I think the, it's going to replace romance novelists. <laughs> if it's going to replace me, it has to take all the data that I've accumulated over the years about the life of Henry Kissinger uh, and, and and turn it into a book. Uh, when it can do that, I'll I'll hang up my uh, my gloves with uh, with resignation and acceptance. 
condensing knowledge may it may do well. Uh, you know, what does the bio, biology literature say about X? But I don't. It it can't go out of the median. It can't go out of the range. So I think you're still going to be useful. I, the, 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 my my uh, my retrospective on 2022 was the median retrospective on 2022, as you will see when we post it. And is the is the goal Neil to get the book out by May 27th? I think I can get it finished by then. I don't think it's humanly possible to get it published by then. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, but yeah, I mean that of course uh, will be his centenary. Uh, I, I'm motivated to write this book. It, it took a while to find the motivation. And in fact, I wrote two books in between Volume One and Volume Two: The Square and the Tower, and then Doom. Uh, but but I've now understood that the real point of the book is explaining what detente was and what it was for, and I think that hasn't been fully understood. So that's 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 the goal. It's not my most important goal uh, for 2023. Uh, I think that is to be a better husband, a better father, a better son. I think if I had to, you know do good fellows under oath, I'd say that's really what I'll be striving for next year. But yeah, I got to get the book finished for sure. Amen, Neil. Very good. Uh, two final questions, gentlemen. First of all, um, the obvious choice for 2023 person of the year will be Zelensky yet again. But again, if we want to gamble and not put out the obvious money on Zelensky, where would you put your chips? HR? Uh, gosh, I'm, I'm Masa Amini and the Iranian people. John? I'm going to quote from Neil, who's quoting from, I forget which British prime minister. Events, dear boy, events. <laughs> and Neil, give us a good eight to 10 to one shot on person of the year, non-Zelensky. Well, I was debating who was the, the world spirit on horseback. This was Hegel's fam famous uh, description of Napoleon. Uh, is there a Napoleon in our time? And I replied, there is. It's it's Napo Elon, uh, because Musk is in so many ways the, the towering figure of our time. Think of it this way. Not only are we talking about him with respect to Twitter, but during the war in Ukraine and its opening phase, it became clear that he was playing a decisive role there, too, because without Starlink terminals, the Ukrainian war effort would probably not have been sustainable. So so although he's been person of the year, probably at least once, if not not twice before, I think one can't really look away from the fact that he is the nearest thing to Napoleon, hence Napoleon. I, I came up with that and I'm proud of it. And I'm gonna I'm gonna copyright it here and now. He is the spirit of of the age, but not on horseback, in a Tesla. And Neil, how does he prevent Twitter from becoming his Ukraine? I don't know. I, I, I remember Sam Lesson saying in a, an essay at, that must be five years old because I quoted it in The Square and the Tower, that if one had completely unlimited free speech in the age of the internet, the result would be a hellscape. And I, I think that's probably right. Uh, and, and I think in a sense, owning a hellscape is, is, is perhaps what, what has, uh, what's been achieved here. Uh, yeah, the thing about being Napoleon is is Waterloo. One must one must never forget that you you do end up at some point at Waterloo. Well put. All right, final question for you, gentlemen. Let's end it on a very HR McMaster note: an officer and a gentleman and an eternal optimist. I'd like to go around the horn here and have each of you explain to me reasons for optimism in the holiday season and the year ahead. HR, you're the resident optimist. Why don't you go first? Hey, well, I think 2023 is going to be a really bad year for authoritarian regimes. 
and a, and a good year for, for democracies. It's not going to be easy in democracies, especially if we tip into recession and so forth. But but uh, I think that these authoritarian regimes that look so strong from the outside and in their own propaganda are actually quite brittle. Mm-hmm. John? I'll go with the, the healing properties of democracies and in, in our institutions. I think a, um, a, a new leader of the Republicans will emerge that will not be Donald Trump and the Republicans will get out of that. And there's very interesting people there. Uh, I, I'm beginning to see peak wokeness at universities, although that that battle might be uh, still in the middle of uh, in the middle of Russia, not yet on its way to Waterloo. Uh, but nonetheless, um, the, the the signs of resistance uh, are starting. Um, so our our capacity for reform after we try everything else um, may may finally uh, spring forth in this year. And Neil, you get the last word. Reasons for hope. Well, you know, there are some years that are just quite boring and not terribly much happens and everybody can just concentrate on on their private lives. That That's something you get when you read Tolstoy's masterpiece, War and Peace. Uh, I, I'm hoping that, that, that 2023 will be one of those peace years rather than a, a war year, uh, a year when things will be better just because they can't be quite as bad as, as this year. Uh, I, I could imagine that, you know, in John's domain, as we all agree, inflation's probably going to be lower next year, uh, absent some other great shock. Uh, it's hard to see how the war in Ukraine could continue at the intensity we've seen this year. I mean, both sides simply don't have the wherewithal to sustain that kind of a, a war. So it probably becomes a less bloody conflict, uh, rather like the Korean War became less bloody over time. And so I'm going to I'm going to take the view that not every year can be an annus horribilis. And on that simple law of historical averages, 2023 will be one of those quiet years which allow you to focus on the important things like your family. I had um, um, as an economist, we, we look at long run growth. Long run growth depends on innovation. So what we just saw with ChatGP3 is really revolutionary. Not in something you'll see next year. But there are the underlying discoveries are still there. Uh, the AI is starting to work. After yeah. 40, 50 years, the AI is starting to work. Uh, biology still, although horrendously restrained by all sorts of bureaucratic problems, um, you know, the fact that we have we can design vaccines in a weekend, gene editing is is coming along. The foundations for uh, you know 10 to 20 years of incredible prosperity are there. We have that opportunity. And, and seeing that happen, I think, is, is a warning. I suppose you could be there the year Gutenberg discovered the printing press. You wouldn't see a lot that year, but it's uh, awfully nice to know that's going on. Let me add a couple of thoughts here. Um, during the holiday season, take a moment. If you have family and friends, embrace them. Thank them for the love and support. Secondly, if you're in good health, relish it. Go out and do something physical, vigorous. Go ski, go run, go go fly a glider, John Cochran. Enjoy the fact that you can be outdoors and be vigorous. And then finally, take inventory. We spent a lot of time on the show talking about people in very difficult situations, nations under attack, people living under totalitarian regimes. That's not the way in the free world, so be thankful for that. Uh, and I'm personally thankful, gentlemen, for the time I get to spend with you most weeks on Goodfellows. It is always an honor and a privilege to be in your company. I hope each of you has a great holiday, and I hope everybody watching this show also has a great holiday as well. And we will see you in 2023. Thanks for watching. 
If you enjoyed this show and are interested in listening to more content featuring H.R. McMaster, subscribe to Battlegrounds, also available at hoover.org slash battlegrounds.